Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 178th episode of the award-winning Diverse Minds podcast. And this month's theme is all about poverty and systemic injustice and the link to mental well-being. And to join me this week to discuss this topic in further detail is Jerry C. Perkins from the United States. Now, Jerry is a master's in social work, and she is the CEO and founder of Impact Action Network Advocacy Consulting Agency, whose mission and vision is to educate to liberate so that diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice is a systemic and institutional priority and not a checkbox. And in the episode, you'll hear that abbreviated to DEIBJ. As a DEIBJ educator, Jerry provides educational advocacy resources so that what we would call global majority black and diaspora communities, and Jerry defines this in the episode, can actually communities can thrive in every facet of life. She has an MA in social work policy, administration and community practice graduate from Arizona State University's Watts College of Public Service and Community Solutions, where she served as a junior inclusive design for equity and access scholar and the founder of the BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, Persons of People of Colour Student Network. And she's also a graduate from historically Black College and University, HBCU, Lincoln University with a Bachelor's of Science in Journalism. So while at Lincoln, most notably, Jerry hosted the Impact with Jerry Perkins talk show on JCTV Access to raise awareness on social issues in local, state and global communities where she was. And Jerry desires to pursue an education doctorate in organization change and leadership from the USC Rossier School of Education to amplify her work as a specific educator. She's a narrative changer, trailblazer and visionary who passionately uses her platform as a black female scholar to represent culture as a strength and not a deficit. And that's something we are absolutely about in this show. So, Jerry, a huge welcome to the show. Thank you. And it's really exciting always to have people from around the world. So we are delighted to have you with us today. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. No, and I know it's early in the morning. You know, it's half nine where you are. So again, I appreciate you taking your morning to talk to us. And I've just read out your bio, Jerry, but I think it's really lovely if you could tell the listeners in your own words about what you're working on at the moment. Yes, I'm Jerry Perkins, MSW. I'm the CEO and founder of Impact Action Network Advocacy Consulting Agency, where we educate to liberate so that diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice is a priority. And so that Black, African-American, Native, Indigenous, Hispanic, Latino, Latina, and Asian Pacific Islander communities thrive in every facet of life. That's our mission and our vision. And I'm working on just amplifying the voices of those communities, working with our ally communities, engaging with stakeholders, and just educating to liberate. That's what we do here with Impact Action Network. And how do you do that? So tell me a little bit more about the forum in which you do that. How do you get people into the space? Um, what do your education programs look like? Yeah, so I provide educational advocacy resources in the form of facilitating group discussions, providing tailored frameworks and interventions, um, resource guides, public speaking engagements, doing interviews to discuss our work and our engagement in the community, as well as needs assessments. When I meet with clients on our free consultation call, 
Um, I create a needs assessment on what that client needs, tailored frameworks and individualized interventions to bridge the gap between the system, the institution, and the community that the client is serving to enhance service delivery outcomes and really being able to utilize my skill set as a master's level social worker to do just that and to holistically assess and evaluate organizations, agencies, corporations, um, in community settings, and to just enhance quality of life outcomes through educational advocacy resources. So one of the initiatives that I've um, started working on is a Black motherhood initiative. And I partnered with a dentist, um, Dr. Jessica Peterkin, and she has her Ministry of Dentistry and Teeth and Tatas nonprofits initiative to provide Black mothers with re resources to nourish their children naturally and provide that awareness and that knowledge. Um, I created a resource guide for her and her um, the clients that she works with, and we'll continue in that initiative moving forward to just provide those critical resources for our Black communities and our mothers and children. Thank you, Jerry. That's a really, really helpful example, just so that we get an understanding of the kind of work that you're doing. And how did you get into advocacy and justice work? And, you know, I know you've got a master's in social work. How did that all happen for you? Yeah, so I earned my start as a fellow in the Emma Bowen Foundation at corporate sponsor NBC Bay Area News. And I remember one of my news mentors, you know, I said, well, I want to use the media as an outlet to raise social awareness. And I had a talk show in college um, when I was attending Lincoln University, Missouri, Impact with Jerry Perkins on JCTV, and I did just that. But my news mentor said, you know, Jerry, that's not journalism, that's activism. And I thought to myself, well, how do I navigate using these gifts and talents, you know, that I have as an orator and an interviewer and being able to connect and build rapport with people and enhance um, amplify their voices and through my work and also do that advocacy work, do that activism work that I really am truly passionate about within my heart. So my journey led me to um, working in the child welfare system and behavior health system with families and navigating the reunification process. Also um, with adults living with serious mental illness, um, just being able to be that voice of encouragement and showing them that I truly, you know, cared about their well-being and their quality of life. Really, I wanted to expand my scope of authority and decided the next step would be to enroll in an MSW program. And I found my path within the policy administration and community practice um, concentration and really it ignited my passion for advocacy. And while serving as a junior inclusive design for equity and access scholar, working on our Heritage Month initiative, amplifying the voice of our Heritage Month influencers um, from the perspective communities that I work with, within Impact Action Network, um, the Black, African-American, Native, Indigenous, Hispanic, Latino, Latina, and Asian Pacific Islander communities, I really just found a passion for advocacy. And this came together to the vision to change the narrative and blaze the trail with my work with Impact Action Network. And how do you manage the frustration when you see and you know this current system isn't working for a majority of the groups that you outlined? So how do you manage that? And how do you make tangible change when often it feels like the system is intentionally stacked against these communities? 
that's a phenomenal question. And, you know, compassion fatigue is real. Burnout is real. And I find it also challenging. And that's why I definitely do my own learning and engage um, with a network of resources and have my own dream team to provide support and within the different leadership programs that I'm doing, because being trying to change the system while navigating living within the system as a Black woman can be also extremely, as Dr. Mary Frances Winters would say, um, fatiguing. You know, she wrote a book, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. And it's hard. Like, it's very challenging. There are days that I emotionally, mentally just feel defeated. And like, you know, I feel like we have to create radical solutions outside of systems and institutions to create change because by design, these systems and institutions were not created for these communities that I'm serving. So we have to find from a solution focused lens and accountability approach to stop perpetuating white supremacy within our own communities of color Mm. that's creating division between us. And I think just that hope and that I know the power in our culture as a strength and not a deficit, that resiliency is the greatest protective factor that our ancestors gave us. And although we've experienced historical and generational trauma and harm, that we have the ability to change the narrative. We have the ability to use those protective factors and that resiliency to show that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams and to continue to thrive and strive to be better and to to continue to sacrifice for future generations so that they do not succumb to the burden of fatigue. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I don't know. You've just sort of floored me, of course, because I know, I I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, but lots of what you've said is absolutely resonates with me. And so thinking about that term then, what does the term advocacy mean to you? Oh, I would say social empathy, just being able to um, put yourself in someone else's shoes. You may have different lived and shared experiences, but having social empathy for people whose experiences are different than your own and just being able to demonstrate that through your work. I feel like that's what the root of advocacy is because you see the value in that individual, their lived and shared experiences, you see the value in being able to utilize your platform and the social responsibility that you have as a professional, you know, as an MSW, that comes with uh, different levels of privilege and power to effect change. And advocacy is just, for me, I feel like it's a social responsibility because at the intersection of race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status, I've experienced different levels of privilege and different levels of oppression. So I definitely feel like advocacy means just utilizing my platform within different spaces and providing representation and just being that voice for the voiceless and amplifying the voices of those who do not have a voice within the design of our systems and institutions. Yes. And this is the thing, isn't it? And and so thinking about the global picture at the moment and pretty much everywhere in the world is having huge strain 
for everyday people, if I can put it that way, on cost of living crisis and challenges like that. So how do you think advocacy can really help to change injustice and create social equity? Providing access to communities and equity is a big part in that. So I feel like in order to increase quality of life outcomes, it's important that people have access to educational advancement, economic advancement opportunities, upward mobility. And as an advocate, just educating and raising awareness on um, the disparities and those social inequities that exist within communities and by design, you know, that being rooted in systemic and institutional racism and oppression that, you know, that's why the wealth gap exists. That's why, you know, economically, a lot of communities have accumulated challenges and barriers that they're unable to buy and purchase homes, you know, unable to sustain and have um, just a quality lived experience within their means because it's just the system was not designed for them to do so. And I think advocacy is about raising awareness on that, providing um, evidence-informed experiences of people's lived and shared experiences on how inequities within um, cost of living, uh, inflation, rising prices, and various things have challenged them and created barriers to their advancement or them having a quality life. And how do we get the people that are the power brokers and the decision makers to listen to that and make changes? Do you think, again, I know that's a big question and I know Mm -hmm. it will look different in different countries, but how it feels like at the moment, no one's really listening. So when we Mm -hmm. think about these barriers that you've mentioned, Jerry, and what's happening, sometimes it's very hard to have hope, isn't it? And I think, how, how can we do this then? How can we get people to sit up and listen when it almost feels like, that people, everyday people and people in poverty are almost fodder for wealthy people? Yeah, so that's another phenomenal question. And um, the request to speak system, you know, anybody within um, our legislator, citizens or constituents are able to go to capitals across the country and to lobby and to speak on behalf of different legislation and bills and to give those uh, policymakers, again, just an opportunity to demonstrate that social empathy for their lived and shared experience. And I mean, it's simple as filling out the request to speak form, you know, going on your um, legislators, your state legislators website and filling out that form to go down to your local capital and share your experiences with policymakers to move um, on their hearts and their minds as, as they make these decisions that affect um, the masses. And again, that's challenging because unfortunately, you know, I read an article um, by Dr. Elizabeth Siegel and it was social empathy, you know, working but still poor. And you'd be surprised how many um, policymakers, largely um, white males who are making decisions for populations and communities that they have no idea what the lived experiences are because they haven't shared in any of these experiences because the intersectionality of their identity is different. 
And that's why representation is so important. And intersectionality in terms of representation is important. Race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, people having different lived and shared experiences to be able to provide a different perspective um, in their decision-making through advocacy to enhance the quality of life of the constituents that they serve. And that is it, isn't it? That is one of the biggest challenges that we, it almost feels like we're going backward um, in the global north rather than forward. And then I wanted to just touch on as well, mental ill health and culture as well. So from the groups that you work with, what do you think the biggest challenges are in accessing support for mental health and well-being whilst battling, you know, poverty and equality? And as you've just mentioned, in work poverty, because it's not, the what we've thought of in the past as people without jobs or people who have been made redundant or unemployed this is people who are working and in work poverty is through the roof so what do you think the biggest challenges are in accessing culturally sensitive support for mental well-being so I feel like eliminating the stigma and shame within um, communities of color associated with accessing mental health care and health care resources is so important because um, that can create accumulated challenges and barriers. And yes, it's very true that the mainstream medical model was not created for our community's well-being by design. And when I say that I'm saying like the mainstream medical model oftentimes is not, does not meet cultural acceptability standards for um, Black, African-American, Native, Indigenous, Hispanic, Latino, Latina, and Asian Pacific Islander communities. Um, that can be because of lack of representation. That can also be just because if you look at the, the um, history of the medical system and also exploitation, you know, like a lot of these communities um, within the Black community, the experience of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, um, and also the sterilization of Black women and girls to control um, the population and the number of babies that are being born. A lot of communities of color have a distrust in the medical system with good reason, because even if we trace back to the institution of enslavement, you know, many Black um, females who were enslaved were used as experimental you know, guinea pigs in laboratories and in, 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 in medical institutions in order to um, create, you know, to, to further the advancement of medicine. Even if we look at Henrietta Lacks and how her sales were used for, you know, the creation of, you know, frameworks within medicine today. So, it, it, the medical model needs to do a better job with meeting the cultural acceptability standards of our communities of color, you know, in terms of spiritual healing, in terms of natural healing practices and traditional healing that may go beyond just prescribing a medicine or um, it, it could be a remedy. And that traces and roots back to our history and our culture as a people which is a strength. And if integrated into these medical systems, it would better meet the needs of our communities and encourage us to access healthcare and mental health care resources without fear of stigma or shame or bias or even um, lies in terms of pain tolerance and how research 
you know, or has shown that, oh, communities of color don't experience pain, you know, the same as our white counterparts because of the melanin in their skin or whatever else myth is fabricated. You know, we've got to educate ourselves um, and seek that knowledge and awareness to break down these barriers and access to culturally competent, culturally sensitive, culturally relevant, and culturally inclusive health and mental health care resources. Yeah, thank you. And we know that's not always easy. And I think, um, you know, in the UK, we still for now have the NHS. So um, I know when it's private healthcare, I think that becomes even more difficult. And workplaces, of course, play a big part in that because of health insurance that you have in the US. And so I wanted to ask you, what do you think workplaces can do um, from large to small, from corporate to startup um, to have to use this justice first framework or how you would identify justice first framework? So I believe that, and you made a very um, good point earlier saying that, you know, people are working in minimum wage and people are still not able to afford um, health care. And um, that's not justice. You know, if someone is, is has a honest living and is going about things the right way and trying to navigate within the, the constructs of systems and institutions by having a job and you know, working hard and they still don't have access to quality, affordable health care. That's not only a systemic issue, that's not only a policymaking issue, but as you mentioned, an institutional issue in terms of workplaces, advocacy needs to be strengthened on behalf of their um, employees. And whether that be through a union, whether that be through peer support or human resources, um, it's important for workplaces to meet the needs of their employees and not just their employees, but the, their families as well. Because oftentimes, you know, for mothers navigating career, you know, there's a big gap in terms of meeting their needs, in terms of covering them while on maternity leave and not just them, but their families and making sure they have equitable compensation to have a safe, healthy pregnancy and bond with their babies. And, you know, fathers, single fathers as well. And the challenges and or the stigma, you know, being able to workplaces, being able to meet them where they're at and working with them and really just thinking about holistically the family unit and not just this employee as in a unit or a number or, a, you know, just results driven, but quality of life for the people that are in these workplaces and how enhancing their quality of life through access to it good insurance, quality affordable health care, and benefits, retirement, 401k, how that will enhance service delivery outcomes because these people will not be pouring from an empty cup. And compassion fatigue, you know, when you're taken care of, when your needs are met, you're able to better enhance the lives of the people that you are serving within different workplaces which will enhance service delivery outcomes and the bottom line, if we look at it from a capitalistic perspective. Mm. Thank you so much. And I think basically what you're saying is we just have to humanize people, stop treating them as numbers, going back to basics, but basics yes. in terms of human connection. But I don't, yeah, it just seems like that's getting further, further away for some organizations, doesn't it? 
And that's unfortunate. And you know what? It's unfortunate. And especially when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and justice, and integrating anti-racist and anti-oppressive practices, embedding them into the culture, the core values, the purpose, the mission, and vision, and beliefs of systems and institutions, it's not enough to just do things out of the goodness of their heart. It has to be some type of economic motivation. And when we're talking about humanity and human rights, you're absolutely right. That does dehumanize people because people are thinking about how DEIBJ can be an economic gain. And not just that we need to treat people with dignity and respect because the worth of a person, everybody deserves that, regardless of their race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, um, socioeconomic status, culture, or religious beliefs. Human beings deserve dignity and respect. And yet it seems like that's 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 taken for granted. It almost seems like a privilege, not a right anymore. That's another great point. And you know what? That, it, it, it does. It absolutely mm. does. And that's a privilege. When we talk about equity and justice, everybody should have that privilege. That's equity. Mm-hmm. Everybody having access to those privileges. What does the Constitution say in, you know, America? Those unalienable rights to yeah. liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Everybody should have access to that. That's equity and that's justice. Not just if you're uh, a certain race or ethnicity or mm. gender or, or socioeconomic status. That's not justice. No. And I think this is this is the thing. I feel like the world is so full of hatred. We're not even we're missing the point sometimes, aren't we? And I think this is you know, when there's more and more division, then people want someone to blame. And I think this is sadly what we're seeing. Absolutely. You see all the time communities scapegoated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about um, the Asian Pacific Islander community, and we were uh, dealing with the global COVID-19 pandemic and how, you know, just the hate that was perpetuated against this community because of use of language that the leader of our country utilized to describe the origin of coronavirus and and to to connect that to a group of people and putting the blame on, victimizing, putting the blame on this group of people and seeing that, that hatred, that's awful. And we've seen it throughout history with the native community and with people say land displacement, land acknowledgement, the land was stolen. The land was stolen. And reparations, uh, reservations, no broadband internet, you know, no access to running water. Although native, you know, people do receive free health care through the Indian health system, the IHS, it's not equitable. And across the board, the Black community still hasn't received any reparations for generations of Black wealth stripped from our communities through the institution of enslavement. And then with the Hispanic, Latino, Latina community, we see immigrant children at the border in cages. It it just shouldn't be happening in the 21st century. History is continuing to repeat itself in various ways. Mm -hmm. And it is rooted in hate. It is rooted in hatred, in a sense of otherism and a lack of social empathy. Yeah, it is absolutely devastating. And 
I think on that and you, you sort of mentioned it Jerry and I can hear the passion in your voice and it, it, it's it's and I feel really lucky that we've got you on the show but I want to ask you you know given the work that you do and you see this every day and you are on the front of this and we haven't even delved into really the work that you're doing on child abuse and the speaking that you're doing how do you look after your own mental health given we've talked about the fatigue of black women the fatigue of black communities what are your top three tips how do you keep going well I've learned that it's so important to just let to validate my thoughts feelings emotions wants and needs likes and dislikes and to let the emotion just move through me to practice that emotional regulation to take care of my needs and I mean that may be from waking up in the morning saying a prayer listening to a message by uh, Sarah Jake Roberts or Bishop T.D. Jakes um, drinking water staying hydrated having a routine, eating a solid breakfast, going for my morning walk around the beautiful Australia um, mountains and the fairways and the golf course and just prioritizing. Um, I go to a dietitian, I go to a counselor regularly, bi-weekly um, to make sure that I'm using healthy coping skills to handle the stresses, not just a doing this work, but of navigating being a Black woman, trying to create radical solutions outside of systems for change, while also having to live within the nature and the culture of these racist and oppressive systems and institutions. My faith is important. Uh, my family is a great support and network and resource for me and my community. But I would definitely say, you know, my ancestors, the strength that, that they gave me, resiliency is the greatest protective factor. They live within me. You know, my great, great, great grandpa, Julian Selly, fought in 1896 for Blacks to have the right to vote in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, lost his life because he sacrificed to for us to have the right to vote. So thinking about Grandpa Selly, thinking about my grandparents and the sacrifices my parents have made for me to have access to the opportunity to live in affluent neighborhoods, quality education, you know, attend private schools. It just keeps me going. Like I feel very blessed and fortunate. And I definitely, I think that gratitude keeps me going every day. Just thinking about my lived experiences and how validating that, but also, and I would say that's like cognitive behavior therapy. Like I practice that within my own life every day that to just redirect myself because your perspective, your thought process can change your whole day. So it can absolutely change your whole day. Thank you, Jerry. And I think sometimes, and I, I think you've put that really beautifully because what I'm quite skeptical about is toxic positivity. But I think the way you've described it is not that you're saying that essentially looking after yourself, but also being realistic, but then acknowledging the gratitude and the things that we do have and the power that we do have to change things, even in small ways. And that is part of everyone's advocacy journey, which then enhances your mental well-being. Absolutely. So thank you. know, Thank you so much for that. And I think this has been such a brilliant conversation. And if people want to know more about you and your work, and I will, of course, include this in the show notes, how should they contact you? Yeah, so they can email um, me at impactactionnetwork at gmail.com. 
They can visit my website, impactactionnetwork.com and set up a free consultation with me. I'm on social media. So Instagram is impact underscore action network, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, Impact Action Network Advocacy Consulting Agency. And hopefully I'll be doing a lot more um, appearances like this to just continue the movement, the educating and liberating Impact Action Network movement. Thank you so much, Jerry, for your time and your deep thoughts and your passion. And I think we really value that. And listeners do check out Jerry's work and we'll see you in the next episode where we're going to be talking more about this. And so thank you so much, Jerry, and take care, everyone. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.